Good day, everyone, and welcome to the Gravel Ride Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Dalton. This week's episode is brought to you by our friends at PNW Components. I mentioned the company a few episodes ago, and the great customer service I received when I ordered a mountain bike seat post many years ago. So I was super excited to start talking to them about what they were doing in the gravel market. Specifically this week, I wanted to highlight the Coast Handlebar. I've been riding the 480 millimeter version of the bar, which is about 40 millimeters longer or wider, excuse me, than the bar I had previously been riding. They also do make a 520 millimeter bar. It features a shallow drop and a 20 degree flare, which all translates into a super stable bar when you're getting aggressive on the bike. I'm really valuing the width of the bar in terms of getting leverage from the outside to throw the bike around. The shallow drops seem to make it easy for me to move around between positions. I feel very comfortable when I combine a dropped saddle with this shallow drop bar that I'm very much in the pocket of my handlebar and I feel very much in control of the machine. So I've been super keen on it. It's definitely a different look for the bike. If you're more used to a roadie type position, going to the wider bar feels a bit extreme to begin with, but it quickly fell into the recesses of my mind as I took advantage of the other attributes of the bar. And as I said, I feel really great in the technical terrain, so much so that we really want to dig in and do a full episode on these wide bars because I think it's super interesting for certain riders to consider depending on the type of riding they're doing and what they're looking for. So head on over to pnwcomponents.com and use the code THEGRAVELRIDE for 15% off your order. This week's guest on the podcast is Jenny Tuff. I'm not sure where to begin talking to you about her resume. She's an amazing adventure athlete, both a runner and a bike pack racer. We got to talk about the Silk Road Mountain Race and the Atlas Mountain Race. And these bike packing events are going to blow your mind. And you absolutely have to go visit JennyTuff.com and see some of the pictures and interviews and videos of these events because they're absolutely breathtaking in terms of the terrain and incredibly inspiring about what the human body is possible of. Just talking to her about the lack of sleep and the challenges that one goes through in these expedition style races was really inspiring for me. And I remember in my last long ride thinking about how I was suffering and thinking, well, that's nothing compared to what these athletes like Jenny go through. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Jenny is one of the Apadura ambassadors for the bag company out of the UK who made the introduction for me. So I appreciate that. And I very much appreciated this conversation with Jenny. And I hope that you take a look at all her adventures and enjoy the conversation. So with that, let's dive right in. Jenny, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Awesome. I'd love, I always like to start off by finding a little bit about your background. And I think in this conversation, your background is both an athlete and someone who's riding gravel bikes. Athlete is a really strong word. I don't know if I'd go that far. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, my background's always been in adventure and travel is always one of my biggest passions. Um, and on the side of that, I was also really getting into endurance sport, like, well, I mean, like a normal person, I guess I started doing marathons before I realized that marathons are just a terrible thing to do to yourself. Um, and I started cycling. Actually, because I was running marathons, I was going to spin class. And I thought, these are actually really fun. 
Um, so when I graduated university, I spent what little money I had on a touring bike and I cycled all the way to the Yukon from my hometown of Calgary. Um, having never rode a bike anywhere before, only done the spin class. Um, <laughs> And then I just realized that this combination of my two loves, endurance sport and travel, was really what made my heart sing. And that was really where I found my bag and what I wanted to keep doing. So, you know, that was mm, 11 years ago. And I guess you just say it, it keeps escalating and getting a little bit out of hand. So that after that first trip, did that sort of spiral your imagination to like, oh, I'd love to go ride here or do an adventure there? Yeah, I think it really opened my eyes because before that I didn't, I mean, I didn't know anything about bikes or cycling. I didn't have, I don't have any friends that are cyclists or at the time I certainly didn't. So I just wasn't exposed to this world. And then I just kind of, when I did that bike tour and I started meeting other cyclists, realized there's this concept that there's nowhere in the world that you can't go if you've got a bicycle and you can just explore and, you know, tire widths depending, go really anywhere. Um, and yes, yeah, so it did, it did spark my imagination once I started getting a little bit more comfortable being alone with the bike. I mean, going on your first trip to a place like the Yukon where you're really alone when you've never rode a bike is just a dumb thing to do. Like I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to fix a puncture at all. I had like a handwritten note in my bag <laughs> that I'd record, like I'd been watching YouTube videos the night before I left on my trip, teaching me how to change a, change a tire just in case I had to do it. Like, I didn't even know there were tubes inside. Like, that's how little I knew about bikes when I left the front door and cycled off to the Yukon. So that was my only real apprehension was I had no idea how bikes worked. And if it broke, I literally had no concept of what to do about that. That's both amazing and refreshing. I think, you know, a lot of my audience, I don't want to project too much, but I, I think a lot of my audience may come from a traditional bike racing background and then they discovered gravel so like adding on adventure to their love of cycling is kind of this new thing and to hear you just talk about you know adventure was the main driver and the bicycle was just this means to kind of get out there and discover the world is kind of something refreshing and I think something a lot of my listeners should probably take in and put in their pocket for to have a little bit more perspective on what you can do with a bike yeah it's really cool and I think I never fit in with the bike, the traditional bike touring culture because I also really did get off on pushing myself really hard and trying to do really big days while I was having the adventure. Like for me, the sport is part of it. It's not just about getting to a place. It is also like how far can I ride before the sun sets kind of stuff. I love doing that. So it's, it's both of them combined. And that seemingly has led you down this path of bike packing and for the uninitiated what, how would you define what bikepacking is? What are you doing to your bike that enables you to do it? And what are you able to do when you pack your bike full of everything you need? Yeah, I think in its most pure form, it's taking whatever bike and strapping whatever stuff you need to it somehow. Um, and going on an adventure, um, overnight adventures, obviously, is what makes it bikepacking. Um, but it's really whatever works for you and whatever type of bike you have. I mean, every type of bike is a bikepacking bike. Um, I do a lot of backcountry stuff where I've got either a tent or a bivy and I'm out there for ages. But then you can also do the glamping stuff where there's hotels and B&Bs and you have a really nice trip. Um, so it's, it's really whatever works for you. In my opinion, there are no rules. There's no minimum distance. There's no specific kit list that you have to have. It's, you know, it's adventure. It's open. Do what, do what works for you. It's, I think it's, Adventure is one of the most creative things out there. So, yeah, no rules. And 
I feel like we're in sort of the golden age of bikepacking bags, whereas before, you know, 15, 20 years ago, there might have been this notion that, okay, you got to put a rack on the back, you got to have panniers, and it's going to be pretty unwieldy off-road. Today's bikepacking bags are just quite a bit different. Can you talk a little bit about your setup? Yeah, um, it is really incredible what we've got available now. And that's when I say every bike is a bikepacking bike, that's largely because this has evolved to a place where even your high spec bike, even your squishy mountain bike, whatever it is, there are bags available to do it. Um, I ride with Apodura bags. I've been working with them for a couple of years and I, in my opinion, make the best bags out there. Um, I do have three bikes, but my gravel bike is definitely my favorite bike packing bike. And we've been to five continents together now. Um, my kit will change a little bit every time based on the terrain but basically it's i've got the gravel bike i've got a front roll bag where i'll keep my sleep system which might be a bivy might be a tent um in my frame bag will be all the tools and then in the saddle pack will be the stuff that i need to survive like um spare clothes waterproofs maybe a stove if i'm going quite remote um but not usually um and just whatever whatever I need for the specific adventure at hand. It's, it's pretty basic. It's pretty minimalist. I like it. And are you trying to distribute the weight in a specific way? Like are you putting heavier stuff in one area of the bike versus other? Yeah. Um, you're definitely going to be happier if you can keep your weight in the frame. And that's where full frame bags are quite popular just because that keeps the weight really low. Um, like that's obviously it's where you would normally keep your water anywhere. Cause that's where your bottle cages are. Um, so a lot of people are putting the heavier stuff like water down there. Um, yeah, heavy. And that's, I think that's the great thing about bike packing bags versus panniers because panniers, I mean, I remember having panniers and how long it would take me to make sure that the right side and the left side were even. Cause if they weren't, you're just going to have a disaster of a day. Um, but bike packing, it's, it's a lot easier to just chuck your stuff in cause everything's really compact on the bike. Um, you it's kind of hard to mess it up. I think, um, I do like to keep the front kind of light and like I said the frame kind of heavier but really I it is it is a lot easier you get away with a lot more it's it's really not that complicated yeah for those of you who haven't sort of seen any of these type bags I mean imagine sort of just a uh, kind of a roll top bag that you can really stuff a lot of stuff into I've been amazed what the kind of rear seat bags can hold I mean you really you can hold basically a, a week's worth of compressed clothing in there if you need to yeah, and I have. <laughs> I'm sure you have. And then a question on the front bar. I know you mentioned kind of trying to keep that a little bit lighter. Have you found or had experience if you overload the front bar that that, that front end is just too heavy and it's making you more um, puncture p- potential? Um, I haven't. My main reason with the front bar is that that's the one that I will use. I will never open during the day. So like, I mean, there's two ways to be fast. One is that you ride fast and your, your bike is light. Um, the other is that you're not the Scottish term for it, faffing around with your stuff all the time, <laughs> always having to dig out every, you want something out of your bag. You have to take everything out of it to reach it. That kind of stuff. If you can just be really slick in your packing, you never do that. So my front bag, just cause it is the most fiddly one because I've got drop bars um, it's different on a mountain bike, but on drop bars, you know, you kind of got to squeeze it in between them. So it's harder to get into during the day. So I only ever keep my sleep system there because I only need that once. And that's at the end of the day. Right. So, yeah. So, no, I've, I've not really had problems. Like, genuinely, the move from bike touring to bike packing is just everything's just easy. It just works. 
And then what type, you mentioned you're riding a drop bar bike. What are you riding mm-hmm. and how big a tire are you able to ride in that bike? So the bike I use the most love my life is my Shand Stushi, which is a, a steel bike made in Scotland with carbon forks. Um, and it's kind of, for me, it's the ultimate bike packing bike because it takes two um, wheel sizes. So I've got 700 C's if I want to go on a road adventure. But most of the time I run my 650B wheels. Um, I think what tires I've got. I don't even remember what tires I've got on there. I want to say they're two and a half. Um, the more tired you have, the more comfortable you're going to be. Um, tubeless obviously is going to increase your comfort because the difference between going out for a nice bike ride versus going bike packing is that bike packing you're going to do this all day and then you're going to get up tomorrow and you're going to do it again and then you're going to get up tomorrow and do it again so comfort becomes a lot more important if you're bouncing along on really high pressure tires you're going to end up having saddle sores by the end of the week so um so i'd always prefer comfort so i just i love my big tires and I would never go, I think I'd never go skinny tires again. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And the listener knows I'm a broken record that bigger is better on tires. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I also have a question on the front handlebar. Are you riding a particularly wide drop bar to accommodate the, the bag? Or does your front bag just kind of fit nicely in what you would traditionally ride on your on your road bike? Uh, yeah, I, I don't. I think I, I tempted, like a lot of people go into flare bars because that'll give you a bit more space. Um, but I've been okay on standard. I mean, on my road bike, I would I do actually have lady-sized handlebars, and so I don't use those on my gravel bar. So that's the only thing I would say is that they are bigger as in they're the standard man-size drop bars. Gotcha. Um, but no, I've, I've been okay. And, and that's certainly, that's where if you needed to make more space, that's something you would look at. I mean, because I've gone on tours with my mountain bike with flat bars and that just, you've got unlimited space with flat bars, obviously. Right. Um, no, but I, I mean, again, it's, you've got to have your stuff, but you've also got to be comfortable. Like if it's going to be sustainable, it's something you're going to do for a week or more. You've got to be comfortable. And I just always think if I had the wrong bars, I'm going to be uncomfortable. I'm going to get an injury. I'm not going to be happy. So I'd rather make everything work around the bike and keep the bike something that's rideable. Yeah, absolutely. So we've set the stage of Jenny as a bike packer, but I don't even think we've scratched the surface of doing justice to the type of adventure athlete you are. So I want to jump into a couple of these events that the listener may not have ever heard of. One being the Silk Road Mountain Race in Kyrgyzstan. I'll probably say it Kyrgyzstan? Kyrgyzstan. And then the Atlas Mountain Race. Atlas Mountain Race. Could you just in broad terms give the listener an idea of what these epic adventures look like? So this style of bike racing is single stage unsupported riding. Rolls off the tongue so well, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, so the idea is that there's a set route for these ones and you have to pass through. Um, I think those ones had three or four checkpoints each. Um, and the distance is were epic and you get given a cutoff time so the silk road i think we had 15 days to finish it and the atlas we had eight days to finish it and single stage unsupported means you've got to carry everything that you need to keep yourself and your bike going and the clock never stops so you you will sleep but the longer you sleep the less likely you are to do well yeah um so it is this really cool competition where you see so many different styles of bike packing like people doing what works for them the atlas race the guy that won it outright, he didn't sleep at all. But a guy that finished, I think, 
in second place, James was two hours behind him and he slept every night for a few hours and knew that he would ride better if he did that. Um, and again, the unsupported means if anything breaks on the bike, you've got to fix it. Um, you, no one can give you any aid. So you have to find your own food out in these countries that most of us had never been to and didn't know our way around. Um, everything you've got to be self-sufficient and it's really, really cool. It's so much fun. To just put a fine point on it for the listener, I mean, these are races that I think the Silk Road mountain race was over 1,100 miles. The Atlas mountain race was 712 miles. These are incredible distances relative to what we often talk about on this podcast as being long events like the DK200 being a 200 miler here in North America. Let's talk about the Atlas mountain bike race in Morocco because the imagery from that just looked amazing. Can you talked about sort of going at your own pace and deciding to sleep when you want to sleep and acquiring food, however you want to acquire it. Can you just walk us through like what those six days look like for you? Cause I think it's just an epic tale. Yeah. And it's, it's really crazy now to realize that I did that in 2020. Like it just feels like a, a past life now, doesn't it? Yes, um, it does. Yeah. My strategy, I mean, my strategy for these races is my line is keep your shit together. Like, just keep everything functioning. Um, get yourself onto some kind of circadian rhythm with your sleep. That's going to be brutal. But so my my strategy was we all left Marrakesh and we had to get over the high atlas. So these are like the snowy peaks. We had a really huge climbing obligation day. Um, and my only plan was to get out fast on that first day and get a good, good day under me. And then after that, it was... Um, try to sleep at the same time. So Morocco is quite equatorial, which meant that we had 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of night. And that was one of the biggest challenges in the race was that half the time you're in darkness and you have to keep your lights running. So most people are using dynamos on their bikes to to keep their bright headlights going. Um, so I would, I would ride as consistently as I could all day. And then around midnight or 1am is when I would bivy down. So I would just roll out my sleeping bag on the sand or the rocks by the side of the trail and try to sleep for two to three hours, depending on how I was feeling and then get up quickly, put that sleeping bag away in my roll bag and keep riding again. And then just ride all day long. Um, whenever there was a town or village that you went through, you'd obviously have to stop and get supplies. Morocco's really difficult on water in particular. So you had to be quite meticulous in making sure that you never ran out of supplies. Like obviously riding those kind of hours if you're trying to ride for, I think my, my ride time each day would be maybe 18, 19 hours. Um, the calories you're going through, you're cutting such a fine line, keeping yourself alive. Like you just can't eat enough. So you had to be, you had to be pretty well organized, making sure that you hit those resupply locations. This is all blowing my mind. So lots of questions for you. Were you running, Good. were you running a dynamo? So a dynamo is yeah. a, a hub mechanism that generates electricity as it's going around so you were using that to kind of keep a, a light charged? Yeah. So, well, so I've got a USB charger on it. So I was able to keep everything going. So I'd have a power bank um, and my bike computer, because obviously you have to follow the route or you're out of the race. So you've yeah. got to keep your bike computer going for that long as well. Um, I had exposure lights that were helmet mounted because you're, in, I mean, it was pretty gnarly. It was a gravel riding event, but I think it was by far the gnarliest gravel I've done. Like a lot of it, you thought, mm, I kind of wish I was on full sus right now. Right. Um, so yeah, you wanted a helmet mounted, like so you didn't fall off the mountain. Um, obviously keep your phone going because 
I'm not doing that something like that without podcasts and playlists to keep me from going insane. Um, so yeah, the dynamo is what kept my power going. And then if I went to a village or something, you could try and plug it in in a cafe or something like that, try to find electricity. Um, cause you just, it's such a losing battle to keep that much technology running smoothly. Yeah. I mean, were you successful in kind of having battery when you needed it? Yeah. I, so I took two lights and that was probably the smartest thing that I did because, um, doing that much night riding and I don't like to mess around with a small light, you know, if I'm yeah. proper going down a mountain trail, I, I want to see it. So, and that's also why I slept at night. Like some people will just sleep whenever they feel like it and just be really like, Oh, I'm tired now and take a little micro nap or something like that. Um, but I always thought it was a waste of time to sleep when the sun was up when I didn't need to waste my light batteries. So, right. um, yeah, so it was, it was definitely something I had to stay on top of and be really conscious of keeping it going. Cause if you're going uphill, like if you're doing something normal, I mean, there was a lot, a lot of hike a bike. And when you're doing that, the dynamo is obviously not running. Like I'd pretty right. much have to be over 10 kilometers an hour to keep the dynamo working. Gotcha. What's that to you? Six miles? Yeah. Am I doing that the right yep. way? Yep. Yeah. You got it right. <laughs> Yeah, good. <laughs> That's, the Dynamo thing's always been in, uh, super interesting to me as a piece of technology that people should look into. So then going to sleep, I mean, you, you mentioned you're just sort of rolling out a lightweight bivy and, and sleeping wherever on the trail made sense or wherever your body was saying, hey, it's it's time to go. Were you Were you, did you bring a stove with you? So when you got up, you could have some tea or coffee or make a little bit of food? Uh, no, I didn't in this race. Um, because... Morocco is a lot more compact in its um, population. And also it's, it is fairly warm that, you know, you didn't have to worry about that kind of stuff. Um, so I didn't bother with a stove. Um, I would just have dry food. Like I think I had, this is going to make me sound like such a Canadian stereotype hippie. I had a bag of granola to get me around the course. So every morning <laughs> I would take my little bag of granola out and try to stuff something in my face before I got going again. Um, but yeah, I think, just whatever dry food like biscuits and chocolate bars is just i mean the diet is not good let's be honest like the diet is pretty unhealthy yeah i I imagine like whatever cafe you stumble across you're just ordering whatever seems like it'll survive when you pack it you just walk up to the counter and you just say what food do you have that can be really quickly in my face and that's basically what you're gonna eat you you just don't care anymore you just need (laughs) calories exactly and then so how was that journey across Morocco? I mean, did you feel, were there multiple days where you weren't interacting with any villages along the way? So one really big factor in this race is that, you know, North Africa is, is a place where men and women have very different roles in society. And in this race, we competed as equals. There's only one podium. There's no difference between, like, we unofficially acknowledged the women's race Um, But officially, it is one race for all of us, no matter your gender or your age or your abilities. Um, But but in Morocco, it is it is a fairly difficult place to be a woman. I wouldn't beat around the bush Um, in touristy Morocco. You're kind of okay. You can probably even go around in a bikini in some places. But um, we were in very rural areas where um, being a woman does come with extra complications um, women traditionally can't actually go to cafes and restaurants in those kind of places, um, especially on their own. So I kind of have to hide between the other riders, uh, which was an interesting dynamic because technically they are my competition. But um, the guys in the race, you know, I got to say, I'm, 
I'm just still really blown away by how sensitive they were to the fact that the women in the race had this extra kind of penalty against them, that we had an extra complication, that we had to look out for our safety and we had to comply with dress code. And we had to be a lot more culturally sensitive. And um, there were some incidents, like there was one woman in particular who had a really hard time with um, kind of male harassment. So, you know, we had to deal with that stuff on top of this very difficult bike race. Yeah. Wow. So that was a factor. Um, I'd been to Morocco before, actually on a solo expedition running. So I knew all that. And so this for me was a very different experience because I had these male riders with me. So I kind of had this pack. And again, like it was just so such a cool thing in this community that is really competitive, but they put competition to the side every time that we went through a village to make sure that the women in the race felt and were safe. That's amazing. Yeah. So we... Yeah, as a community, community, we really came together, and that was that was such a nice thing about the race. And I imagine just the sort of spirit of adventure that everybody who signs up for these races is in for. There, there really are whether it's safety, you know, in villages or or just mechanical issues or what have you. I imagine everybody's kind of looking out for one another to the degree that's possible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and it's kind of hard because you all really love each other. Like it's, you know, it's the tribe. We all become instant best friends on these things. Um, but with the self-supported rule, actually, if someone has a mechanical, you can't help them or else you've disqualified them because they've accepted your help. Right. Um, so you, you kind of just be next to someone sometimes going like, Hey buddy, that looks pretty broken. And you just have to sit there with your arms folded and, and watch and chat to them or whatever. But if you take one tool out of your bag and it's so hard as a cyclist, like yeah. you know, we, live by this creed that if someone's got a puncture you help them if you've got a tube for them whatever um and then in these races you you just you can't and it's so weird and so awkward um it's probably the thing that i hate the most is that you can't help each other that you just have to like watch someone else suffer and and hope that he's gonna figure it out and be okay yeah i bet because in Um, a lot of these situations i'm sure like you know you break your derailleur off and you're on the top of a climb or whatever, you've, you've, you've got no choice. You've got to continue forward. You've got to convert that bike into a single speed or do whatever you have to do to keep going forward, or you're just walking. Yeah, exactly. And, and I should say the scratch rate in these races is really high. You, know, you mentioned the Silk Road, which was the one that I'd done a couple of years ago, and I think out of 100 riders, 31 finished. Um, the Atlas was a little bit, better than that um i can't really remember how many people cross the finish line but you know the chances of finishing it sometimes goes pretty close to 50 percent um you know there's just things that you're not going to fix or obviously you're in these foreign countries the likelihood of getting sick um the distances are insane so injuries take out quite a lot of riders um yeah like it's it's gnarly just to finish absolutely and how do you keep yourself sort of mentally with it and focused on the on the prize throughout these events yeah that that can be hard because you are solo um so i i really do like music and podcasts i think music is great for manipulating your mood so for me night riding can be the hardest because i'll just i'm such a like zen rider i'll just happily slow down and look at the stars and have a really nice time but that's not how you want to race so um I do sometimes have to pull out some kind of playlist that's going to get me like turning those pedals and get me really mega. Um, The nice thing about these races when it's on a set route is that you are passing the riders all the time. So even though you can't help each other ride together and draft, um, you can ride in proximity to other people as long as you're not 
pairing up and actually helping each other in the race. So I did have quite a lot of hours that I spent with other riders, people from all around the world that I would have never met otherwise come from completely different lives. But the one thing we have in common is gravel bikes. Um, so we did have that company and that camaraderie and that was really cool. So yeah, I think you just, you got to stay on top of it with your mental game. You know, if you start thinking negatively, if you start focusing on how much pain you're in, because by the third day, guaranteed, you are in pain. Um, if you start zoning in on that stuff, you're in a losing battle. You know, you've got to find a way to come back from that and keep yourself just thinking positive, thinking about how much you love your bike, even if that's not feeling very honest right now. <laughs> um, you know, you've just, you've got to be proactive about it is what I found. So that's where... Yeah, the music and podcast to manipulate my mood or chatting with the other riders or, you know, gratitude was huge for me. Like I said, being in Morocco is, is a very difficult place for a woman. You know, I, it was really hard to, to like lose focus of the fact that I am so privileged. I get to compete in this sport that is very male dominant. I get to fly to other continents around the world and ride my bike freely and, you know, I get the spare time and health and money to be able to be an athlete. You know, like my gratitude levels through that race were so through the roof that I was just look around you like this is cool. You get the opportunity to do something like this. Like it hurts, but you chose that hurt, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. I think that goes a long way. Just everything you're saying about a positive attitude, whether it's, you know, your first hundred mile ride or an epic adventure like this, just un knowing and understanding that everybody from the first person to the last person is going to have a moment of, you know, almost deep despair in how they're feeling and, and not thinking they can yeah. turn the pedals over another moment. But at the end of the day, the body is capable of more than you think it is in most cases. So just keeping that positive attitude and keeping moving forward seems like a great mantra. Yeah, absolutely. And I read a study a couple of years ago that you actually will get to the top of a climb faster if you keep on repeating to yourself the phrase, I've got this, versus, oh my God, this is hard. I don't like this hill. Um, so it's scientifically proven to say nice things to yourself and back yourself and think positively. And that maybe doesn't come naturally to me, but, you know, we start doing it and see how it works. And, you know, it totally helps. So can we talk about how that attitude applied during the Silk Road mountain race and that first climb that I've read about? Oh, that first climb. I mean, it was like a punch in the face right out of the start of that race. Like we had, to, I think the first climb was just over 4,000 meters altitude, which is a serious altitude for, um, anyone, yeah. you know, it was a, it was a hard climb. We got hit by a thunderstorm while we were doing it. Um, the last bit was hike a bike and then the bit going down, if you even got over that pass, which a lot of people didn't on the first day, going down that pass was also some hike a bike. And when you're hiking down, that's like hard on everyone's mood. <laughs> like, yeah. what am I doing walking my bike downhill? This isn't appropriate. And it seemed like um, there was this, this calculation that you had to make as a rider right out of the gate about how far you were going to make it in that first day. And if you were going to be bivying in the snow and all kinds of horrible choices that if you didn't get to where you thought you were going to go, your, your, your beginning of your race could start awfully difficultly. Yeah. Cause you're really committed. I mean, you don't want to set up camp at 4,000 meters. It's a dumb thing to do. Um, so you've got to decide, am I going to actually make it over the pass or am I not? Um, yeah, it was. And then that thunderstorm, I think a lot of people didn't expect 
the thunderstorm. Um, again, I'd actually been to Kyrgyzstan on an expedition before, so I was kind of familiar with the flow of the nature out there, which is um, very typical in the summer to have a buildup of a thunderstorm late afternoon, and it's going to last a couple hours, but then it's going to stop. So when the thunderstorm hit, I know a lot of people set up their tents and bunkered down and just thought, you know, oh, well, like bad luck. Yeah. Um, but I just put on my jacket and I kept going because I knew that if I kept moving, I would stay warm and I would eventually be dry in a couple hours when this would all stop and I could just keep going. So I went through the thunderstorm, which I think kind of sealed my race start for me, at least that I, I did do that and I didn't stop. Um, but yeah, it just... Yeah, I remember that day really well. It just seemed like chaos. There were just riders everywhere going like, what is yeah. this? Everything's hard. Everything's getting thrown at us. Exactly. I remember it must have been like 2017 when I first became aware of that race and event. And I looked very much forward to kind of observing it and being a dot watcher. And, I, you know, they did a great job of kind of conveying information from the field via their podcast and other kind of social platforms. And, um, you know, all that anticipation as a fan to look at it and then to see how challenging that first day was for people. It really just blew me away as an event. Yeah. I mean, you definitely knew right from the start, whether or not you were cut out for this. Um, there was no gentle warm up. It was really like you were either in this or you should just go home now. Like this is going <laughs> to be hard. And you know what? And it stayed true to that theme. Every single day had a new punch in the face. Like it was a hard, hard race. And with that event, did you feel more remote for longer periods of time than you did in Morocco? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that event does require a level of backcountry skill. Um, one that you are at altitude, but also there are really remote stretches. So you had to carry a lot more in this race. So you had to have things like water filters, a stove. Um, you would have to carry several days worth of food at any point. Um, and there's just being a lot less villages means, you know, your mechanicals, you don't get to walk to the next um, mechanic or someone that can help you. Like it's going to be days and that village probably isn't even going to have anything. Like there aren't bike shops in the countryside of Kyrgyzstan. Like that doesn't right. exist. Um, so yeah, it did. I think that one felt a lot more like a mountain expedition race with bicycles rather right. than a bike race. Right. So you were fortunate that, Atlas mountain bike race happened early in 2020. So you actually got a big yeah. event under your belt. Did you have any other events planned for the year or is there, are there things you're excited about pursuing in the future? Um, yes, yeah, so I, I don't race very often. I'm more of an adventurer, but I actually, I stay in racing because of the tribe, because of the get together of all these really cool people that we get to ride together. Um, the racing element is always really weird for me because I'm not that competitive actually. Um, so I, I am quite gutted that we're not racing at the moment, that it's going to be a while. Um, I didn't have another race plan for the year. The Atlas was going to be my event. So I'm, yeah, I'm just beyond grateful that I got it. And then I was going to do um, more bike packing and touring kind of around Europe, which isn't happening at the moment. I'm actually speaking to you from Whistler. Um, as a Canadian citizen, I'm quite lucky that I get to just um, hide out here. Not a bad place to hide out. On. Yeah, it's not a bad place. Um, I have managed to get on a bikepacking trip around Vancouver Island, which is where my family lives. Um, so I have managed to keep going. And again, I'm really grateful because I know a lot of people aren't able to adventure on the level that, that I am. Um, yeah, so I'm just, I'm just not thinking about it too much. It'd be nice to do a race and get the tribe together. But, you know, if it's going to be a while before we do that again, 
I'm just not going to dwell on it. Yeah, I think that's a good attitude. We've all had to sort of just take a deep breath and a pause and say, like, we love being out there in the wilderness. We love riding our bikes and, and do it for that. And we'll find a way to get the community together when it's safe and healthy for everybody. Yeah, exactly. And thank goodness for bikes. I mean, if you want, how could you get through this without cycling right now? I just think we all need to get outside. This is what we need. I know. I would have gone nuts. I would, remember we, we were talking briefly about Spain before we were recording and I had some friends over there who were limited to riding bicycle trainers on their balconies of their yeah, small exactly. apartments. Yeah, and so I did a quarantine when I arrived in Canada. So I had two weeks worth of a turbo trainer. And for about two weeks, I could probably keep it interesting, but I... I mean, I think the longest I ever stayed on it was two hours. And I was just like, oh, yeah, I'm so bored. <laughs> I haven't seen anything new. And, you know, two-hour rides. I mean, come on, I need way more than that. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it. Well, this has been awesome, Jenny. I really appreciate you kind of talking to the listener about these great events. And I encourage everybody to check out um, Jenny's website, which I'll link to because there's some amazing f- film you've created about some of your well, adventures. Thank you. Um and also pointing to other coverage of like the Silk Road Mountain Race and the Atlas Mountain Race that are worth watching. And then I'm also, Jenny, geeking out over your running expeditions because I think that's awesome as well. Yes, I do have fun. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> so fun stuff. Thanks so much for the time, Jenny. Thanks for having me, Craig. Wow. Quite a story, right? I find athletes like Jenny and those races, the bikepacking races, so inspiring. I so want to do something like that at some point in my life. Don't know if it will be these you know, week-long events, but certainly something overnight I think would be an amazing challenge for any of us. So that's our episode for this week. I appreciate you joining us. We've just started a new forum on Facebook to kind of have some conversations about these items. So if you have any questions, make sure to check out that forum. You can find it by finding the Gravel Ride podcast page and just look for our group over there. As always, we welcome your feedback and we love hearing from you. I can be reached at craig at thegravelride.bike. Next week, we'll be back with another episode of In the Dirt with my co-host Randall Jacobs, and we look forward to talking to you then. Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels. 